Welcome. We are reading a testimony against several profane and superstitious customs now practiced by some in New England, the evil whereof is evinced from the Holy Scriptures and from the writings both of ancient and modern divines by Increase Mather. This Reformation audio resource is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. Many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing classic and contemporary Puritan and Reformed books, CDs, and much more at great discounts, are on the web at www.puritandownloads.com. Also, please consider, pray, and act upon the important truths found in the following quotation by Charles Spurgeon. As the Apostle says to Timothy, so also he says to everyone, Give yourself to reading. He who will not use the thoughts of other men's brains proves that he has no brains of his own. You need to read. Renounce as much as you will all light literature, but study as much as possible sound theological works, especially the Puritanic writers and expositions of the Bible. The best way for you to spend your leisure is to be either reading or praying. And now to SWRB's reading of a testimony, which we hope you find to be a great blessing and which we pray draws you nearer to the Lord Jesus Christ, for He is the way, the truth, and the life, and no man cometh unto the Father but by Him. The Gospel of John, chapter 14, verse 6. A testimony against several profane and superstitious customs now practiced by some in New England the evil whereof is evinced from the Holy Scriptures and from the writings both of ancient and modern divines. By Increase Mather, teacher of a church in Boston and rector of Harvard College at Cambridge in New England. They turned quickly out of the way which their fathers walked in obeying the commandments of the Lord, but they did not so. Judges 2.17 the customs of the people are vain. Jeremiah 10, verse 3. Ego inquit apostolis, omnibus per omnia placio, nimirum saturnalia and calendus, Januarius celebrans, omnibus placibat, an modestia pacentia and humanitate and Integritate timent gentes ne viderentur Christiani, nas ne ethnici pronuncimur non vermur. Tertullian de Idolater, Cap 14. London, printed in the year 1687. The Preface. The holy prophets of old did in a special manner preach and write against the prevailing iniquities of the age and place wherein they lived. And the Lord Jesus has by his own most holy example 
taught his ministers to do the like. Yea, though they should be exposed to great sufferings from the world on that account, having declared what it shall turn to them for a testimony of their faithfulness to him, whose servants and whose witnesses they are. Such like considerations have caused me to look upon it as my duty, both living and dying, to enter my humble testimony for the ways of Christ and against those things which I am convinced are directly opposite thereto, and I have therefore written what cometh hereafter. Since the composure whereof there is much discourse of beginning of stage plays in New England, the last year promiscuous dancing was openly practiced and too much countenanced in this degenerated town. There was in the day of it a testimony published against the evil, that evil by the ministers of Christ in this place, amongst whom I am the least. If we should now behold things as bad or worse coming in upon us and be altogether silent, I know not how we should be able to answer to him who has set us as watchmen to the house of Israel and most solemnly charged us to show unto them their iniquities. But as for stage plays, the evil thereof has been abundantly discovered by several of our English writers, particularly Mr. Stubbs, Mr. Perkins, Dr. Ames, and by Mr. Prynne in his large and elaborate discourse on that subject. And Dr. Reynolds has a most learned treatise called The Overthrow of Stage Plays, wherein it is manifestly proved that it is not only unlawful to be an actor, but a beholder of those vanities. The reader is referred to the books mentioned for further satisfaction. I must but briefly suggest a few things here. First, stage plays had their original from those devil gods whom the Gentiles worshipped. The infernal spirits did expressly command that men should use such recreations, which we may be sure they would never have done were not such pastimes displeasing to God and dangerous to the souls of men. Austin relates that Titus Latinus was by a demon told that he should declare to the Senate that they ought to renew their stage plays. He, neglecting to deliver his message, was again by the demon called upon. And a third time, the issue was that stage plays were revived more than ever. Valesius, a rich Roman, having prayed to his household gods for the recovery of his children, who were dangerously sick of the pestilence, he was by them bidden to give them water to drink taken from beside the altar of Pluto, which having done they recovered, and the infernal spirits required him in way of gratitude to celebrate night plays. But that scenical interludes had no better than original than what has been mentioned is further manifest from the testimony of Tertullian, Clemens Alexandrinus, Arnobius, Lactantius, Austin, and Valerius Maximus. Hence ancients call such theaters the devil's temples and stage plays, the devil's lectures and the actors in them, the devil's chief actors. Tertullian in his book De Speculation Chapter 
26 speaks of a woman that upon her going to see a stage play was immediately possessed with the devil and the evil spirit being in a way of exorcism expostulated with for entering into one that professed Christianity. He answered that he had just cause to do it, for, she sa for said he, I found her on my own ground, where I have dominion. Second, for men who call themselves Christians, to do that which is contrary to their vow and baptism must needs be very evil. But this is sadly true concerning stage plays. Baptized persons are under obligation to renounce all the pomps of Satan, and therefore to abhor and abandon stage plays, which bear a principal part in the pomps of the devil. The Salvian argueth in stage plays, saith he, there is an apostasy from the faith. Men in baptism profess that they renounce the devil and his pomps and his shows. The devil is in his, in his pomps and plays. If then thou dost return to stage plays, thou dost lead the faith of Christ and return again to serve Satan. Thus did that faithful minister of God declare and testify against the degenerate Christians of that apostatizing age wherein he lived. It has been proved that the impleted interludes were at first instituted for the honor of idols, and they were a special part of the old ethnical worship. Hence, for Christians to take them up is practically to renounce the faith and allegiance which they promised to the Lord in their baptism. Tis the usual practice of stage players to make themselves and others merry with the vices and wickednesses of men. Now this is certainly evil. To set forth sin dramatically or sportfully is inconsistent with that sorrow for sin as sin, which is every man's duty. The wickedness of other men is not to be named without detestation. Ephesians 5.3 Nor to be thought on without sorrow because of the dishonor which has been done to the blessed name of God, thereby Psalm 119, 136, and 158. Wherefore, to make such things a matter of recreation and delight is as contrary to the spirit of a true Christian as darkness is to light. Fourth, the natural effects of stage plays have been very pernicious not to speak of the loss of precious time and of his state, which might be better improved. Multitudes, especially of young persons, have thereby been corrupted and everlastingly ruined. When they have seen a lively representation of wickedness on the stage, their minds have been vitiated, and instead of learning to hate vice, as is vainly pretended, they have learned to practice it. Seneca could say that nothing has a greater tendency to corrupt good manners than to be at these spectacles. It's a sad observation which some have made that persons who have been corrupted by stage plays are seldom and with much difficulty reclaimed. A more woeful and effectual course to debauch the young generation Satan himself cannot easily devise. I remember Austin in his confessions report concerning Alypius, a very hopeful young man whom he had great affection for, that he was much importuned by some of his acquaintance to go along with them to see a sword play. He at first denied to go along with them, but at last to please them he consented, 
only resolved that he would keep his eyes shut as long as he continued on the stage. But one of the fencers being smitten so as to fall, the spectators gave a shout at the hearing of which Alypius opened his eyes. And then, saith Austin, he was struck with a deeper wound in his soul than the other was in his body, so that he fell more miserably than the sword-player had done, whose fall caused the mighty shout of the people. He no sooner saw another man's blood, but at the very instant drank down a kind of savageness, being much taken with the barbarousness of the sword-fight, and made drunk with that bloody pastime. Nor was he now the man he was when he first came thither, but came, became an entire companion of them who brought him to the theater. He was so inflamed with it and carried home with him such a measure of madness as that he came another time, nay, ran before them who first enticed him and hailed on others to do so too. And in this course continued a long time, but... God was pleased at last by a strong and merciful hand to convert him. Thus far is Austin's relation, by which we see how dangerous it is for persons, especially young ones, to go to a stage play or to behold a sword fight. God may be provoked thereby to give them up to walk in the ways of their heart and in the sight of their eyes. The emperor Honorins abolished all the gladiators or sword players in Rome. See Grimston's Imperial History, page 273. Fifth, the generality of good men, both in former and latter ages, have looked upon stage plays as abominable vanities. The fathers, as they are called, do with one voice vehemently condemn them. Clemens Alexandrinus would have the very memory of stage plays to be abolished, and he styles them the chairs of pestilence, and concludes that it is not lawful for Christians to be present at such plays. Lactantius saith of them that they are the greatest instigations to vice, and the most powerful instrument to corrupt the minds of men, and ought therefore to be wholly abolished amongst Christians. Hera declared concerning them that they are lewd inventions by which the devil useth to gain innumerable companies of evil men to himself. And he saith that in places where the gospel prevailed, stage plays and playhouses went down, whence the heathen complained of the times of Christianity as unhappy times. Christostom says, Nothing that nothing brings the ordinances of God into contempt so much as these plays, and that God's ordinances will do the man no good that shall be a spectator of such vanities. But I forbear mentioning other testimonies against the impleted interludes. Not to be present at a stage play was of old a character of a Christian, whereby such were discerned from other men. In those days they would not baptize any person that should be so much as a beholder, much less one that should be an actor in a stage play. Yea, if Christians did afford their presence at such stage plays, they were by the ecclesiastical constitutions judged as guilty of a crime deserving no less than excommunication. In the council at Aries in France, Anno 314, and in El Eleberine Council in Spain, Anno 
305, it is decreed that stage players shall be excommunicated out of the society of Christians. The like is to be seen in many other ancient councils, which for brevity's sake I omit. As for pagano Christians, as Dr. Moore rightly calls them, I mean papists, they excuse, plead for, and practice these vanities. Nevertheless, amongst them, Bonaventure, Solotius, and Rovinius reflect the, upon histrionical plays as evil things. Nay, the Council of Trent does not absolutely, but with some restrictions, re approve of them. Since the Reformation, Protestant divines have abundantly testified against such recreations as in themselves evil. So Martyr, Aretius, Danius, Rivet, and many others. In the discipline of the Reformed Churches in France, Anno 1571, I find these words, It shall not be lawful to assist at comedies, tragedies, and other interludes, plays of manners, and other plays, represented publicly or privately, because at all times they have been prohibited amongst Christians as causing corruption of good manners. In a national synod at Dort, in Holland, Anno 1578, and in several provincial councils there, such interludes are condemned. Votius declares that stage plays had been quite banished out of the city of Utrecht and other places, and not practiced for many years. Yet that some of the senators did against the serious and solemn obstetations of Christ's ministers suffer them to be revived, Anno 1663. And he saith that those comedies were forerunners of the dismal tragedies which followed within two years after, in respect of the sword and pestilence wherewith this land was visited. The Lord in mercy grant that New England may never see comedies attended with the like tragedies. But if I should enlarge on these things, this porch would be too big for the small building it stands before. Nevertheless, the talk which passeth among some vain persons concerning a maypole which they intended to set up when the time shall come constrains me to add one word concerning that. These sports are very same with the old heathens, and this Tesia, Floralia, and Laurentinalia, which some Christian emperors did utterly abolish, they which observed not only after the same manner, but at the same time of the year with the pagans, Floralia, which had from the time of their celebration the name of Majuma, or May Games, given to them, Hence is that of the poet, Exit et in Magis, Feature Florale Calendus. The best authors give this account concerning maypoles, and the plays attending them. There was a prodigious strumpet whose name was Flora, who by harlotry had gained a vast sum of money. She bequeathed her whole estate so infamously gotten to the people of Rome, only desired, and it was agreed to by the Senate, that once in a year, namely in the month of May, plays and dances might be instituted in honor to that great whore. This is the original of May games. And from hence is it that maypoles are adorned with flowers and garlands. 
It would cause me far too far to exceed the limits of a preface if I should produce the testimonies of ancient and modern divines against this wicked vanity. I therefore desist at present. It is an abominable shame that any persons in a land of such light and purity as New England has been should have the face to speak of think or think of practicing so vile a piece of heathenism. October 30th, 1686. A testimony against several profane and superstitious customs and so forth. Chapter 1. Against health drinking. The definition of unhealth reasons to prove the unlawfulness of healthing. That practice is amongst the relics of heathenism. It was in its first institution abominably idolatrous. Its original is from hell. Tis an occasion of much sin. Health drinking as usually practices against charity, justice, and reason. Wise, sober, and good men have utterly condemned it. The tremendous judgments of God upon notorious heathens not to be slighted. Several pleas for healthing answered. It has been made a question by some, why may not Christians drink or pledge healths? Is there any sin in such a practice which hath been used by the generality of mankind, time out of mind? Now that we may not mistake in stating the controversy, it will be needful to inquire into the nature and definition of unhealth. I shall not enumerate, nor am I willing to defile my pen with mentioning the cursed mysteries and ceremonies observed by some health drinkers. John Frederick Matanasius, in his book De Ritu Bibendi, Supersanitate Magnatum, has described enough of them. Unhealth is not merely one saying, when he drinks to another, that he wisheth the health of such a person present or absent. Nevertheless, where the using of such expressions proves any way offensive, to be sure, tutius est abstinere is charity to forbear them. But in health is that which doth oblige men to drink such a quantity of liquor as an indication of their praying for the health or prosperity of such a person or of such a design. According to this description, we conceive that a Christian ought not, nor can he without sin against God, either pledge or drink in health, and the more especial reasons which sway our consciences in this matter are the f these following. First, Christians ought not to retain any remainders of heathenism. It is confessed by all that as to natural actions which belong to men as men, it doth not follow that because the heathen have so practiced it of old that Christians who succeed them may not do the same things. But in ceremonies and things of a religious nature, they are not to be imitated. To dedicate a cup or consecrate in health is not an action purely natural or moral. The worldly and vain customs of the Gentiles are not to be taken up by such as profess themselves to be the servants of the true God in Christ. The Holy Scriptures do clearly, expressly, and abundantly prohibit all symbolizing with the heathens. Leviticus 20.23 20, You shall not walk in the manners of the nations. See also chapter 18, verses 2 and 3, and Jeremiah 10.2 
Learn not the way of the heathen. Psalm 106.35 They were mingled among the heathen and learned their works. Ezekiel 11.12 You have done after the manner of the heathen that are round about you. Matthew 6.7 Use not, and so forth, as the heathen do. Romans 12.2 Be not conformed to this world. In Ephesians 2.2 In time past you walked according to the course of this world. And chapter 4.17 Thus therefore I say and testify in the Lord that henceforth you walk not as other Gentiles walk in the vanity of their mind. 1 Peter 1.14 As obedient children, not fashioning yourselves according to the former lusts in your ignorance. And verse 18 Redeemed from your vain conversation, received by tradition from your fathers. And chapter 4.3 The times past of our lives may suffice us to have wrought the will of the Gentiles. I have produced these scriptures to prove that there ought to be a difference between Christians and other men, and that non-conformity to the heathenish customs of the world is by the Lord himself enjoined upon all his servants, but that the impleted healthing was not first practiced amongst the people of God, whether Christians or Jews of old is past all dispute. Learned men who have written on this subject show how it is amongst the relics of paganism, which has, through the papacy, exonerated itself into the sink of a decaying world. Instead of many, I shall only produce Austin's testimony, which does sufficiently confirm what has been asserted. His words are these, That filthy and unhappy custom, saith Austin, of drinking healths, is a relic of paganism, and let Christians banish it from their feasts and tables as the poison of the devil. Thus has the great Austin expressed himself above twelve hundred years ago. Health drinkers may call him a fanatic if they please. Second, that practice which was in its first institution abominably idolatrous and which has still in it an appearance of idolatry ought not at all to be used amongst Christians. The first and great commandment of the moral law confirms this proposition and so do all those scriptures which require men to flee from idolatry and not to tolerate any remainders or remembrances of idolatry amongst them. The holy word of God abounds with precepts of this nature. See Psalm 16.4, Isaiah 2.18, Zephaniah 1.4, 1 Corinthians 10.14, 1 Thessalonians 5.22. But this healthing was in its first institution abominably idolatrous. No man that has made it his concern by reading to inquire into these things can be ignorant that the heathen who were the first healthers did at their feast drink an haustrum salutis, first to their gods and then to their patrons and friends. Particularly, they had one cup which is in health to Jove, another that did imply a prayer to fortune, then which there cannot be more hateful idolatry. From ethnics, some idolatrizing Christians have learned to drink health to angels and to the souls of departed saints. 
But shall men that profess the true religion do anything that shall seem to be a symbolizing with such idolaters? The health drinker seems to worship the object of that health, Fabio Sacrum Libavit Honorum. It is well said by Bishop Hall that an healther is by his forms of ceremonious quaffing does make himself a beast while he makes a god of others. And do not those ceremonies of putting off the hat and kneeling frequently practiced by health drinkers intimate some kind of adoration? Besides, for any man to make his drinking to signify an invocation of the name of God or to be the amen of a prayer, declaring his desires that such a person may have health, is superstition and falls under the idolatry forbidden in the second commandment. And health is indeed a profane sacrament. Hence are those words of Ambrose, Quid memorum sacramental bibimus pro salute imperatorum. Amongst the Gentiles of old, healthing did imply sacrifice and prayer. Third, that which had its original from hell should not be practiced by Christians whose conversation ought to be in heaven. This is so clear a proposition as that I shall not use words to confirm it. He must be an atheist to a prodigy that shall contradict it. But the impleted healthing had its original from hell. This is not my single apprehension. Very learned and judicious writers affirm that the devil himself was the first author, institutor, and inventor of health drinking. It was in its first rise used as a drink offering to Satan. There were among the Jews of old drink offerings poured out to the true and holy God, being part of the ceremonial worship, once of divine institution, Genesis 35.14, Exodus 29.40 and 41, and a cup of health, Psalm 115.15, which in their solemn thanksgivings the master of the feast holding in his hand before the Lord did praise him for all his salvations, and in imitation hereof Satan, who takes pleasure in corrupting the worship of God, and arrogates to himself a divine service, caused the blind Gentiles, whose God he was, to honor him with healths and drink offerings. In those dark and dismal ages, which passed before the Son of Righteousness arose over the earth, all the nations of the world, excepting Israel, worshipped the dragon. And healths were one part of that sacrifice and service which the Gentiles honored Beelzebub with. The Apostle speaks of the cup of the devils, 1 Corinthians 10.21. Amongst the devil's cups there was a poculum in delibatum, as Minutius Felix calls it, out of which they drank to their gods, and by saluting them in that way manifested a religious adoration of those infernal spirits. Chersius in Plutarch intimates that the great god Jupiter, and we know who was the Jupiter worshipped by the heathen, made a feast for the inferior gods and poured wine into a cup and enjoined them in a course to drink it off. Basil in one of his sermons showeth that the heathen Greeks had in their feasts a master of healths, one that should see that each of the guests did drink off the cup of wine presented to him in his course and order, 
and of this law, saith he, the devil himself was the author. And hence it comes to pass that Satan is so much delighted with health. He may well, when a homage is done him to himself thereby. He rejoiceth to see miserable mortals taking, taken with that which was his device, invented on purpose to debauch mankind, and as an engine for their destruction. I omit here that which Del Rio and others have related from the confessions of sundry detected magicians, namely, that in the conventicles and festivals of witches they are wont to carouse health in honor of Beelzebub and his inferior Keiko demons. Fourth, it is the unquestionable duty of every Christian to avoid the occasions of sin as much as may be. The commandment which forbids such a sin requires that men take heed of the occasions and temptations leading thereunto. Proverbs 5.8 and 23.31, Ephesians 5.11 A Christian ought not only to shun the occasions of sin himself, but to be careful not to cast an occasion of sinning before his neighbor. This is that scandalizing or giving offense to others, which the Holy Scriptures do so often caution men against. Scandalum est quod inductivum peccati. He that is drawn into sin is offended and made to fall. Christians ought not to omit a duty, lest others should from thence take occasion to sin, but they should forbear many indifferent things when the practice of them will become an occasion of evil. Romans 14, 20, 21. The holy apostle saith, If meat make my brother to offend, I will eat no flesh while the world stands, lest I make my brother to offend. 1 Corinthians 8.13 Supposing what must not be granted, that the drinking of unhealth is in itself of an indifferent nature. Nevertheless, if it become an occasion of much sin, that practice ought to be wholly laid aside. But the impleted healthing has occasioned a world of iniquity to be committed, needs no proof. It occasions God's name to be dishonored with respect to the abuse of his creatures, and so is a breach of the third commandment. It has occasioned the sin of drunkenness more than a thousand million times. When wicked men intend a debauch, they are wont to begin with in health. Wendelin testifieth that among the Germans they set in health a-going, ebriatatis concilande gratia, that, so that they may have a drunken bout. The ancients have called healthing the devil's shoeing horn, whereby he draws on drunkenness. The most judicious Ames observes that it is one of the mysteries of Bacchus, whereby men are officially, artificially, and cunningly drawn into an excess of drinking, and it has been the cause of infinite quarrels. The rude compliment of the old health drinkers in Polonia was out mihi prebebi, out mecum armis desertato. There is too much of that genius in many healthers still. It would be endless to speak of all the vain words, censures, and wicked reproaches, nay oaths and blasphemies, which have been the natural and woeful fruit of health drinking. Fifth, healthing as usually practiced is against the rules of charity, justice, and reason. He that puts another upon drinking such a quantity of strong liquor 
when perhaps he has enough and too much already, does not show that charity either to his neighbor's soul or body which the rule requires. And woe to him that giveth his neighbor drink, that puts his bottle to him, makes him drink drunk also. Habakkuk 2.15 Men pretend charity to another in drinking his health, whereas many times thereby they destroy their own and their neighbor's too. That witty epigrammatist John Owen saith true, Una salis sanis nilum potare salutum, non est in pota vera salute sulis. Unequal draughts of wine imposed on all persons are contrary to the rules of distributive justice. That may be beneficial to one that would be baneful to another according to the tempers or distempers of men's bodies. And it is unjust and tyrannical invasion of the liberty which belongs to everyone, both as a man and as a Christian, when he is obliged to drink more than his present appetite inclines him unto. And it is against reason for a man to drink for another's health. Suppose he should be required to eat a pound of flesh or of cheese when he is not hungry, and that for the health of his friend, how rational would the proposal be? And it is no better when a man that is not a thirst is required to drink a pint of liquor for another's health. This is worse than brutish falling. An ox or an horse will not drink more than sufficeth nature. A learned man relates a facetious passage concerning a notorious health drinker, who having continued drinking health to the honor of St. John till his wits were wet-shod, as he returned home riding through a brook, he bade his horse drink to the honor of St. John, but the beast, not being thirsty, would drink nothing. And the drunken man had so much reason left in him as to confess that his horse would, think, would drink no health was wiser than his master. Quanto melior ebriosus canis and asinus, said Chrysostom of old in one of his homilies, when Glarianus was importuned by some to drink more than he had an appetite unto, he put them off with an a that answer, Num isto cane in sipientiorum ne vultus. A brute has more wit than to do so. Sixth, that which wise, sober, but especially good men have utterly disliked may well be suspected as evil, and Christians should be careful how they comply with such a practice. But this is true of health drinking. Some of the wisest men in the world have manifested their great dislike thereof. Charles the Great made a law to punish such as of his soldiers as should compel or invite any to drink in health. Likewise, the emperors Maximilian and Charles V did seek to reform that evil custom, emitting edicts for the punishment of such as should be found guilty of it, and exhorting ministers to preach against it. Popish authors are generally lax casuists, yet some of them have so much of morality in them as to write against the impleted healthings. So does John Frederick Matinesius, Withal, reflecting on the Protestant profession, because healths are so rife amongst those that go under that name. But he might have considered that papists are no less guilty. Also, Sanctius Serarius, Lesius, Bonartius, Canon Hyrus, Chaversius, notwithstanding their being papists, have disliked this health heathenish custom. 
Yea, Pope Innocent III made a decree against it, with all ordering that if any of the clergy should be proved guilty of healthing, he should be suspended ab officio and beneficio, without giving due satisfaction for his offense. And not only Christians but moral heathens have banished hells from their tables and out of their feasts. We have one great instance of it recorded in the scripture. When Ahasuerus made a mighty feast according to the state of the emperor of Persia, the drinking was according to the law. None did compel, for so had the king appointed to all the officers of his house that they should do according to every man's pleasure. Esther chapter 1 verse 8 Lyra, a Christianized Jew, in his commentary on those words, does justly inveigh against the health drinking practiced by Christians. And well may he, when there are Persians and heathens, to rise up in judgment against them. The Ecuclopsia of the licentious Greeks was once disliked by the grave Romans. Tully writes in Circumpotation, in other words, health drinking, was abrogated by the Roman laws. Afterwards, indeed, they did relapse into that vice again as bad as ever. Yet some of their poets did satirically reprove it, styling the rites about health drinking mad laws. I pretermit other instances of men who ha had only the light of nature to direct them, and yet looked upon this healthing as an unreasonable custom, that which had a tendency to corrupt good manners. He that would see more may peruse what Mr. Prynne has written on this subject, but men, truly fearing God, have much more abominated this ill custom. The scripture saith, Walk in the way of good men, and in the path of the righteous, Proverbs 2.20. Are the greatest healthers good men? Would any one be willing to have his soul gathered with theirs when he must leave this world? Sound Christians in the primitive times were no health drinkers. It is indeed manifest by one of Nazianzen's orations against Julian that some loose Christians in those days did drink health in a pretended honor to Christianity as the pagans did to their gods and great ones. And we see by what Austin complains of that some would drink at the sepulchres of the martyrs in honor to them though in truth they could not reproach the martyrs and Christianity more than by thus paganizing. But the serious and true primitive Christians refused healths, for which the heathen exclaimed against them as if they wanted due devotion to their emperors. Hence the ancient and famous teachers in the Christian church have testified against this iniquity. So Clemens, Alexandrinus, and Basil amongst the Greek fathers, as they used to be styled, so Ambrose, Austin, and Jerome amongst the Latins, whose sayings are largely recited by Mr. Prynne, Mr. Bolton, and others. And amongst modern Protestant divines, it were easy to produce a cloud of witnesses in this cause. Votius, Richardius, Lacinius, Teeling, Tassin, Crocius, and I know not many besides. Not, I know not how many besides. Amongst our English writers, Dr. Ames, a man for his learned works deservedly famous in all Protestant churches, Mr. Downham, Mr. Bolton, Mr. Gattaker, Mr. Ward, Mr. Harris, Dr. Hall, and Mr. Thomas Hall, have witnessed against this evil. Mr. Gary also published a treaty discovering the vanity and iniquity of it. 
The late famous Judge Hale made a solemn vow to God that he would never drink in health as long as he lived, which vow he kept to his dying day. None could prevail with him to drink so much as the king's health, though but for one time, for which cause some indecent men were unworthily charged that noble and truly loyal person with obstinacy. These things sufficiently prove that they are mistaken who think that only a few silly and humorous men have disapproved, disapproved of healths, some who have been foolish and vain to great excess upon their growing wives have utterly left their health drinking with bitter sorrow that ever they had been so foolish. The repentance of Mr. Francis Cartwright was many years ago published wherein he hath this expression, It now wounds me to the heart to think of my drinking health. It may be when men come to have real visions of eternity or when they lie upon death's beds they will repent of this their way which has been their folly. Seventh, the tremendous judgments of God which have befallen notorious health drinkers are not to be slighted. Many authors worthy of credit have taken notice of this. Shussel Bergius, in his epistles, has several awful examples of tremendous vengeance of heaven which fell upon some wicked scholars as they had been drinking health. Mr. Ward, in his Woe to Drunkards, has six or seven instances of miserable men who died before their time by means of this iniquity. A great healther had once a ring given to him with his poesy in it, Drink and Die. So has many a wretched healther done. He hath drunk and died, yea, with his health drunk his soul into these, those flames which, as one speaks, all the ocean can never quench, though he should health it down. Memorable and fearful was that instance of Mr. Richard Juxon, once a fellow of King's College in Cambridge, who, as he was drinking and healthing, fell down dead in a moment, and his carcass immediately so corrupted as that the stench of it was insufferable, insomuch that no house would receive it. Alexander the Great killed himself drinking in health out of Hercules's cup. Most tragical is the relation concerning twenty of the chief princes in Pomerania, who were all of them poisoned to death in one day because they did not refuse to drink King Popolus his health when the queen, who had prepared the poison, urged them to it. But let us consider a little the chief pleas and arguments which are made to justify this unhappy custom. Some argue, first, if a remembrance of an absent friend when one drinks is lawful, then in health is so, but you are not so humorous as to scruple that. Answer. The consequence is denied, for a remembrance and in health are not the same. The primitive Christians had their pocula amicitae, which was the same thing with our drinking one to another and remembering our absent friends, but they had no health among them, as we have showed. In a remembrance, as it is called, a man is not obliged to drink up the whole cup, nor is the person to whom he drinks obliged to pledge him, except he seeth cause. He is left to his liberty to pledge where and in what and how he pleases, which things are contrary to the laws of unhealth. A remembrance is usually of friends and equals, when unhealth is commonly to superiors, so that these two differ the whole heaven over. Second, some excuse the matter by saying they do not compel others to pledge them when they drink in health. Answer, this is so far well. I wish all could say so. 
Nevertheless, it should be considered that the very beginning of an health has some kind of compulsion in it, especially when the exorcism of a great name is added to the health. Everyone hath not power and courage to withstand the temptation of such an adjuration. Third, there are those who excuse themselves by pleading they are loath to be uncivil or that any should take occasion to think them morose and ill-humored. Answer, the incivility is on their part who urge the health and not in them who out of conscience refuse it. Nor will in, in, any ingenious person be offended at him, ingenuous person, be offended at him, who shall with discretion and modesty decline pledging in health. It was not taken offensively from that noble statesman who said, I'll pray for the king's health and drink for my own. Nor was the Duke of Buckingham displeased with Dr. Preston for his not complying with the ceremonies of in health, but misliked the incivility of the person that would have imposed it. Nor was Alexander offended at the philosopher who told him he was not free to drink his health, and that for this reason, because he had no desire to make himself stand in need of Esculapius, when thereby he could do Alexander no good. Fourth, it is pleaded that the famous Luther drank in health, and other good men have not scrupled it. Answer, if Luther did any such thing upon his first coming out of popery and monkery, and before he saw the evil of it, none ought to allege his example to justify an unlawful deed. Nor is it certain that Luther did thus after his conversion. Protestant writers do not acknowledge the fact when it has been objected to them. Only some popish authors tell the story of a prodigious health which Luther drank to Iobius, the German antinomian. But the papists have invented a thousand lies, not only of Luther, but of Zwinglis and Calvin and other reformers, great reformers, in design to cast an odium upon the Protestant religion. Besides, it is the poorest argument that can be some good men have done such a thing, therefore it is lawful. It was showed before the generality of good men had declined health as paganish and scandalous things. And when any good men have indulged themselves in this practice, commonly it has been for want of information concerning the evil of it. Had they known the true original and been convinced of the superstition attending this ill custom, they would never have used it. Persons well inclined will hearken to scripture and reason, and it is chiefly for the sake of such that I write these things. As for some who are now become profane and debauched health drinkers, there is little or no hope of their reformation. Having lived for some time under the powerful dispensation of the gospel, but sinned against that blessed light, and also rebelled against the light of their own consciences, it is to be feared that God's Holy Spirit has taken his everlasting leave of them, never more to strive with them, but that they are in a judicial way given up by the righteous and terrible God unto a reprobate mind and hard heart. It may be God has said of them, their helping is their idol, they are joined to it and let them alone. He that is a profane health drinker, let him be an health drinker still, and if so, I pray that this may never be the woeful case of any amongst us, but if so, 
all that can be spoken or written to such persons will do them no good, nor serve to any other purpose but only to render them the more inexcusable before the great tribunal at the last day, and to make eternal justice the more illustrious in their condemnation. Chapter 2 Against dicing, cards, and such like games, that it is safest wholly to abstain from them. The lottery in them makes their lawfulness to be doubtful. Eminently learned divines have judged them to be in their own nature sinful. They are of evil report. There is a secret curse attending them. They are offensive. It is unquestionably lawful to abstain from them. As such games are commonly used, they are certainly and heinously evil in the sight of God. The evil of playing for money and of misspending much precious time in such vanities. As for games of hazard and chance, such as dicing and cards and sundry games at tables, there are great divines, as anon we shall show, who judge them to be in their own nature unlawful. Others suppose that if the rules which should be remembered in all recreations, respecting the time and measure and manner and the end of them, were duly observed, they might without sin be used. Two things we may assert. Practiced, there is much sin and provocation to God in them. Both these I shall endeavor to clear. My first assertion is that it is best and safest to decline all such games, and that for these reasons. First, there is real weight in that argument, commonly made use of by divines, from the lottery which is in the impleted games, to prove that there are breaches of the third commandment, and so in themselves unlawful. It is granted that there is art and skill mixed in some of these games. Nevertheless, there is a lottery in them. Now, a lot is a serious thing not to be trifled with. The scripture saith not only, as some would have it, of extraordinary lots, but of a lot in general, that the whole disposing or judgment thereof is of the Lord. Proverbs 16.33 So that when the lot is cast, God sits in judgment. The lot, as Mr. Cartwright speaks, is as God's duty, who is judge of the world, and unto whose providence appeal is made to decide the question. Mr. Perkins, who is a man of a very clear and accurate judgment, well observes that in the use of a lot there are four things. The first is a casual act done by a man, as the casting of the dice. The second is the applying of this act to the determination of some particular controversy, the ending whereof maintains peace, order, and so forth. The third is confession that God is a sovereign judge to end and determine things which can do, can no other way be determined. The fourth is supplication that God would by the disposition of the law order the event. Now, from these considerations, grave and great divines have esteemed all lustry lots to be unlawful. We may not, either by words or actions, invocate the name and make appeals to the providences of God on every trifling occasion. As an oath or prayer, so a lot is profaned when not solemnly used. 
A worthy person speaks well to this purpose when he saith, What an abomination would it be any to any Christian to see a pulpit, a communion table, a font exposed on a stage, or the gestures of worship ate by players. And it is not much better when men play with appeals to God or make themselves sport with lotteries. Whereas some have affirmed a lot fittest for trivial matters, their assertion is very unsound. We do not find in the scripture that ever a lot was made use of except in matters of great weight, either in themselves or in respect of their consequences, sometimes when the matter has not been great in itself, yet to prevent endless contentions and controversies, a lot has been used amongst the Lord's people of old. Leviticus 27.32 Proverbs 18.18 But not in matters of disport. The very Gentiles themselves thought there were, was something divine in a lot, as is manifest from Jonah 1.7. They concluded that some Newman or deity must needs direct their chance, which being ignorant of the true God, they did superstitiously ascribe to fortune. And do not gamesters at this day used to say they'll try their fortune, and that they had bad luck, that fortune was against them, and the light paganish expressions, which by, never, by which nevertheless they acknowledge a director of the chance. This must be either God, which if they confess, the cause is yielded, or a good angel by his direction, or an evil angel unto whom they will not own that they make any appeals, or owe any subjection. He that makes use of a lot wholly commits his affairs to a superior cause than either nature or art, and therefore unto God. But this ought not to be done in a sportful, lustry way. Second, practices which eminently learnedly learnedly divines and holy master, ministers of God who are most likely to know the truth have looked upon as sinful. It is best and safest to abstain from them. But this is true of the games in question. I know that popist casuists who in matters of morality as well as in matters of faith are many times corrupt do justify the impleted games as lawful. So Toled Alapide, del Rio, and others. Yet papists will not allow such games in ecclesiastical persons. One of them, Ignatius Lopez, maintains it to be a mortal sin for a clergyman to play at cards and dice. Several councils have made it a crime worthy of excommunication for clergymen either to practice or to be present at such games. Not only the canonical, but the civil law of old has stigmatized them. Amongst the ancients they are reproved with great severity, particularly by Clemens, Alexandrinus, Chrysostom, Cyprian, Ambrose, and Austin. As for our great reformers, they have generally condemned the games as in themselves unlawful. So Martyr, Galter, Rivet, Tassin, Don Danius, who has written a learned discourse on this subject, the Dutch and French ministers of the Reformation do generally disapprove of these games, and so do our English divines. In special, Mr. Cartwright, Mr. Perkins, Dr. Ames, Mr. Finner, Mr. Eastie, Mr. Dodd, yea, and two bishops also have testified against them, namely Bishop Babington and Bishop Downham. 
As for Dr. Hammond, who was a man very corrupt in many of his notions and in some points of doctrine, which are a great concernment, I do not judge his pleading for the lawfulness of such recreations worthy of the taking notice of, nor can I call to mind more than two Protestants of note who have published anything considerable in defense of these games. Baldonius, a Lutheran casuist, excuseth them. Also, our learned Gattaker has taken more pains to prove the indifference of them than any I have seen, but he writ that discourse in his younger years, and has been well answered by Mr. Balmford, and learnedly refuted by Votius. Yea, and Mr. Gattaker himself, after he had said all he could say, wisheth that men would in godly discretion abandon such games, because they are so much abused, and many are unsatisfied in the lawfulness of them. Third, it is best and safest to abstain from all things which are of evil report. The apostatical rule is, whatsoever things are of good report, practices that which cause a man to have a good name among sober people. If there be any virtue, if there be any praise, think on these things. Philippians 4.8 Which showeth that things infamous or of ill report should be carefully avoided. But so are the impleted games. The satirist calls the dice by the name of the Alia Turpis, and the orator calls Catiline and Antony with this infamy that they were men that used to play at dice. And the generality of good men abstain from them as evil and infamous things. Are not such games branded as infamous when in every indenture for apprentice these words are usual? At cards, dice, or in any other unlawful and prohibited games, he shall not play. Fourth, it has been observed by many that there is a secret curse attending these games. Hence it is that when people, when persons have once a little used themselves there hereunto, they can know no bounds therein. They are so bewitched with the gaming humor that as they will lose their friends, esteem, estate, and everything else that's desirable, rather than play no more at cards. Infinite evils and miseries have sprung up from this bitter root, so that the tree has been justly suspected as not good, upon which such bad fruit has grown. It is then best and safest not to meddle therewith. Fifth, these games are offensive, and that both to good and bad. The scripture saith, Give none offense, neither to the Jews, nor to the Gentiles, nor to the church of God. 1 Corinthians 10.32 But these impleted games give offense to all. Good men are grieved at such practices as in their conscience are unlawful, and many carnal ones are hardened in their profuseness and profaneness when they hear of any that seem to be religious in other things to do these matters as they do though perhaps not altogether in the like degree. Sixth, if there were nothing else to be said, but that the lawfulness of such games is doubtful, that's enough to make wise men to abstain from them. Suppose it could be not be clearly proved that they are absolutely and in their own nature sinful, yet if the matter be in any way disputable, tis best and safest to keep clear of them. I am sure there is no sin in not playing at cards and dice. And then, as long as there are other recreations enough, concerning which there is no doubt of their lawfulness, it is best to desist wholly from them at their 
that are doubtful and make others of use use of others these things make good what I first proposed my second assertion is that the impleted games as commonly practiced are unquestionably sinful and provoking to God first it is common for such gamesters to play away their estates or to get other men's estates in this way both which are exceedingly sinful when God has possessed a man of an estate which he has a just title unto now for him to make it a question whether this estate shall be his or another man's and then to decide the controversy by the shuffling of cards or the cast of a die is unworthily to abuse the good providence of God and so to transgress the third commandment. This is also to break the eighth commandment in a very high degree. To get another man's goods at an underprice is injustice and theft and clearly against the rule of righteousness. How much more to take from another his money and give him nothing at all in lieu thereof. It is a crying sin. Who can de- who can who dare pray to God to bless his endeavors to get an estate in this way most certainly the holy God who hates robbery for burnt offering would not hold the man guiltless that should take his name in vain when as all lawful ways of adding to our estates may and should be prayed over that worthy and truly religious gentleman mr john bruin was wont to say that such gamesters and thieves were of the same corporation and the more cunning men are in that art the more wicked and the late writer observes that money gotten by gaming is like the goods of them that die of the plague which commonly bring a pest with them he that shall add but a little to his estate by getting money from another in any such unrighteous way will perhaps find that little to be like a moth that shall consume and bring a secret blast of God upon all that he enjoys. And he that gets riches and not by right, the man that gets a sum of money by playing at cards, has gotten riches and not by right. He shall leave them in the midst of his days, and at the, his end shall be a fool. Jeremiah 17:11 I would seriously advise all such persons so far as they are capable to return back their ill-gotten goods again as ever they desire pardoning mercy at the hands of God against whom they have grievously sinned that saying of Austin's is well known and generally approved of non toliter peccatum nisi restitutar ablatum he that has in a way of unrighteousness taken from another any part of his estate has no reason to expect the remission of his sin until such time as he shall make restitution to the party wronged by him so far as he is able to do it a word world of precious time more precious than all men's estates is commonly spent in these vain and vexatious sports for a Christian to use recreations is very lawful, and in some cases a great duty, but to waste so much time in any recreation, though never so innocent and laudable, as gamesters usually do at cards and dice and tables, is heinously sinful. Every man's eternity in another world will be according to his improvement of time here. What a sad account will they be able to give to the Son of God at the last day, who have spent 
a very great part of that time wherein they should have been preparing for eternity in nothing but idleness and plays. What can there be more contrary to that divine precept of redeeming the time because the days are evil? Chapter 3 Against Profane Christ Mass Keeping In the apostolical times the Feast of the Nativity was not observed. The very name of Christ Mass savors of superstition. It can never be proved that Christ was born on December 25th. It is most probable that the Nativity was in September. The New Testament allows of no stated holy day but the Lord's Day. Objections Answered it was in compliance with the pagan Saturnalia that Christ Mass, Holy Days, were first invented. The manner of Christ Mass keeping, as generally observed, is highly dishonorable to the name of Christ. Concerning that practice of keeping the 25th day of December in a stated anniversary way as a festival and pretended honor to our Savior Christ and in commemoration of his birthday, I shall briefly present a few arguments to the consideration of the judicious. First, in the pure apostolical times there was no Christ Mass day observed in the Church of God. We ought to keep to the primitive pattern. That book of scripture which is called the Acts of the Apostles saith nothing of their keeping Christ's nativity as a holy day. The centuriators and many others take notice that in the first ages of the New Testament church there was, were no stated anniversary holy days among Christians. Easter was kept a long time before the Feast of the Nativity, and yet the Apostles never ordained that, as Socrates, the most excellent of the ancient ecclesiastical historians, does truly observe. Had there been the least hint of any such day observed in the primitive times, learned Vosius would have told the world of it, saith of him, Si pergama dextra defende passant etiam hac defensa fuisent but he acknowledges that the feast of Christ's nativity was not kept in the first nor yet in the second century. After prelatical writers have said all they can say, his words will be found true. Anniversarium diem natalis Christi celebratum fuis, apud vestissimos nuncum legitur. The most ancient writers speak not the least word concerning the celebration of Christ's birthday. Second, the word Christ Mass is enough to cause such as are studious of Reformation to dislike what shall be known by a name so superstitious. Why should Protestants own anything which has the name of Mass in it? How unsuitable is it to join Christ and Mass together? In other words, Christ and Antichrist. But what communion has it light with darkness, and what concord hath Christ with Belial? Second Corinthians 6.15 Some of the Jesuits have advised that endeavors should be used to, be, to keep up their old, old terms and names, such as priest, altar, Christ mass, candle mass, and the like, hoping that by means thereof, in time the things would follow the names whereby their memory is preserved. Third, it can never be proved that Christ's nativity was on the 25th of December, the most learned and accurate chronologers conclude otherwise. So Scaliger, Lydiat, Caldicius, Casabon, Lansbury,
Aspergius, Alstidius, and the ablest divines, which this in the last age have known, such as Parcius, Scultus, Spanhemius, Hospinian, and of our own nation, Perkins, Broughton, and innumerable more. Yea, some of the most learned among the papists refer the observation of December 25th to ecclesiastical constitution. So, Patavius, Suarez, Azorius, etc. The providence of God has strangely hit the day, perhaps as concerning Moses' body, to prevent idolatry. They that lived 1400 years nearer to the time of Christ's nativity than we do, yet were at a loss about the day. Clemens Alexandrinus, who lived anno 200, testifieth that in his time there were, no various, there were various opinions concerning it, and he reflects on them as guilty of curiosity, who would go about to determine the day of Christ's birth. Moreover, when that superstition of keeping a stated festival in commemoration of the day of Christ's nativity did first obtain in the church, not the 25th of December, but the 6th of January was the time observed. Many of the churches in Egypt kept the 5th of January, and so did the Christians of old in Jerusalem and the Armenians even until the year 1170 and that some belonging to the Latin Church supposed that to be the true day of Christ's nativity is evident from the Glossa Ordinaria. Epiphanius conceived that to be the true time, and some of our late writers, in special Lansburgius, are of that opinion. The truth is that the keeping of December 25th came from Rome, and it began there after Constantine's time nor would the Grecian churches comply with it at first. Chrysostom, who flourished in Anno 400, it, in one of his sermons, endeavors to excuse the novelty of that observation, acknowledging that the 25th of December had not been kept amongst them in Constantinople above ten years. The arguments commonly alleged in favor of this day are very insufficient. The original mistake which popish writers and before them some of the ancients have laid upon the weight upon is that Zachary was the high priest and that he did minister on the 10th of Tishri, in other words, September 27th, whence it would follow that John Baptist was born in the latter end of June and consequently that Christ's nativity must be in the latter end of December. But Zachary was not the high priest, nor can it be proved that his turn to minister was at the times mentioned, nor could the nativity to a day or a week be from thence demonstrated, supposing the premises to be indisputable. There have been some who pretend to a miraculous argument for their 25th of December, namely that of the Rose of Jericho. They have given out that there is a Jer in Jericho a plant like a rose, which Every year on Christ Mass, Eve flourishes, and the next day is dry again. Aldricomius and other papists mentioned this as a wonderful testimony to their opinion of the 25th of December. But Bolognius has informed us that this is a monastical imposture. There is a thorny shrub at Jericho which bears white flowers, and the nature of that plant is such that if the leaves of it, though dry, be moistened, they will dilate themselves and seem to flourish which the monks observing would on Christ Mast Eve apply water thereunto, and then make ignorant people believe that this happened as a sign of Christ's nativity on that day.
Perhaps the story of the Holy Thorn at Glastonbury in Somerset is the daughter of this fiction. Let it be further added here that, except we could know the hour of the day when our Savior came into the world, which no man living does, and it would be a sinful curiosity to inquire concerning it, it cannot be proved that it was on December 25th. This Suarez was aware of, and therefore he confesseth that if we suppose Christ to be born before midnight, not the 25th, but the 24th of December, should be celebrated in honor of his nativity. To conclude, as Tornelius does, that Christ was born a little past midnight, or, as others say, on the same day of the week, and the same hour of the day in which Adam was created, are curious and bold speculations which cannot be justified. As for the astrologers, such as Petrus de Aleaco, Cusinus, Garcus, Cardin, and some more lately, who by their horoscopes and calculations have undertaken to declare the day and hour of Christ's birth, their attempt is justly charged with not only vanity but impiety. A late learned astronomer, though a Jesuit, acknowledges that such practices are not only unprofitable but highly profane. Fourth, Though that particular day in Christ's nativity is now unknown to unto the world, yet it seems most probable that he was born in the latter end of September or in the beginning of October. There hath been great variety of opinions amongst Christians concerning the time of our Lord's nativity. Paulus de Middleburg thinks it was on March 26th, but the grounds he goeth on are weak. There are some of old, as Clemens Alexandrinus witnesseth, who believed it was on April 22nd, unto which opinion Temporarius seems to incline. Lydiat conjectures that the Nativity was on or near May 22nd. Dr. Pettit thinks it was on the beginning of November. Thus, we see that the providence of God has kept the day secret from the knowledge of men, and it is vain for any to determine the particular day. Nevertheless, as to the month, a probable judgment may be made. The great Scaliger, Calvisius, and Lemperer conclude that it was in the latter end of September or the beginning of October, and before them, Barrow Aldus, Wolfius, and Hospinian were of that judgment, and this suits well with what is recorded in the shep of the shepherds in Luke 2.8. It is not probable that the shepherds would be abroad watching their flocks in the depth of winter. The month of December is by Hesiod called Mes Kalepos Probatois, and though in Judea the summer be hot, yet the winter is cold. Matthew 24.20, Psalm 147.17 But in September or October this might well be nor is it likely that Augustus should adjoin all his subjects throughout the whole Roman world to travel into their own cities in the midst of winter, as he did at the time when Christ was born, in Luke 2.1. Moreover, the feasts of tabernacles, which signified the incarnation of Christ, was in the seventh month. Inasmuch as the Passover typified Christ's death, he was crucified in that month. Why, then, may we not think that since the Feast of Tabernacles typified his nativity, he was in that month born? 
There were also several other festivals in that month which might fitly type the good tidings of great joy that should be to all people by reason of Christ being born into the world at that season of the year. Likewise, in the same month was the Ark of so by Solomon brought into the temple. From these considerations, some of the Jewish rabbins have concluded that Messiah sh should be born in Ethanim or Tishri, in other words, in the seventh month. And Mr. Broughton, in his book called The Lord's Family, observes that the Jews scoff at Christians for keeping the Feast of Christ's Nativity on the 25th of December, saying that they place Christ's birth in the month of his conception. And this opinion has been confirmed by the practice of the church in Alexandria, who did of old, Cyril Alexandrinus testifieth, keep the feast of John Baptist's nativity on the 28th of Farmouth, in other words, the 23rd of our April. And if John's birth was at that time of year, Christ must needs be in September or October. I shall not insist on the argument urged by Scaliger and Calvisius, which some look upon as demonstrative, taken from the several courses appointed for the priests to minister, because it depends much upon the testimony of Josephus, who does often mistake in his relating of things. Nor is it certain that Christ was born in the year of the world 3947, upon which foundation the Scaligarian argument is built. I shall only add that Christ was thirty years old when he entered upon his public ministry, Luke 3.23. And he continued preaching three and a half years, Daniel 9.27. So his birth must needs be in, no, so he lived 33 and a half years. And if so, dying at the time of the Passover in the first month, his birth must needs be in the latter end of September or the beginning of October. By this it appears that Christ mass keepers speak they know not what. When they say on the 25th of December, Thou hast given thy son to be born this day, and to use that expression several days, one after another, is absurd. A learned man observes that when the papists in their apostles say of the festival dedicated to the memory of this or that saint, He was born this day, such festivals are teachers of lies, like their graven images. The like is to be affirmed in this month. In this case, it is said of Jeroboam, that he ordained a feast in the eighth month, or on the fifteenth of the month, even the month that he had devised of his own heart, First Kings 12.33. So has the Jeroboam of Rome ordained a festival he kept on the twenty-fifth of the twelfth month, but it is the month and the day which he has devised of his own heart. Fifth, God in his word has nowhere appointed Christians to keep an anniversary holy day, in commemoration of Christ's nativity. It is not a work, but a word makes one day more holy than another. There is no day of the week, but some eminent work of God has been done therein, but it does not therefore follow that every day must be kept as a Sabbath. The Lord Christ has appointed the first day of the week to be perpetually observed in remembrance of his resurrection and redemption. If more days than that had been needful, he would have appointed more. It is a deep reflection on the wisdom of Christ to say he has not appointed days enough for his own honor, but he must be beholding to men for their additions. The old Waldens 
witnessed against the observing of any holidays besides that which God in his word hath instituted. Calvin, Luther, Danius, Busser, Farrell, Viret, and other great reformers have wished that the observation of all holidays except the Lord's Day were abolished. A popish writer complains that the Puritans in England were of the same mind. So was John Huss and Jerome of Prague long ago. And the Belgic churches in their synod Anno 1578. The Apostle condemns the observation of Jewish festivals in these days of the New Testament, Galatians 4.10, Colossians 2.16. Much less may Christians state other days in their room. The Gospel has put an end to the difference of days as well as of meats, and neither the Pope nor the Church can make some days holy above others, no more than they can make the use of some meats to be lawful or unlawful, both which are expressly contrary to Scripture. Romans 14, 5, and 6. All stated holidays of man's inventing are breaches both of the second and of the fourth commandment. A stated religious festival is a part of instituted worship. Therefore, it is not in the power of men, but God only, to make a day holy. It has been by some pleaded that Mordecai and Esther appointed the days of Purim. This was objected by the papists against the Waldenses many hundreds years ago, and of later time by Bellarum, Severius, Bonartus, and other papists in their writings against Protestants, and lately by the prelates against the nonconformists. There are two answers given by our divines. First, it cannot be proved that those days of Purim were a religious festival. Many judicious authors make them to be no more than days of civil rejoicing. They are not called holy days of Purim, nor do we find that there was an holy convocation of the people enjoined on these days. The present Jews do not look upon those days as holy. They spend them in feasting and in telling merry stories, and although few of them do any servile work on those days, yet they confess that servile labor is not prohibited therein, so that it appears to be only a political feast, not unlike our 5th of November. Second, if we suppose them to be religious feasts, we have reason to conceive that they were not a meet human institution. Dr. Whitaker thinks that Mordecai was divinely inspired, or that some prophet was sent to give order about the observation of these days. It is also objected that Christ manifested his approbation of the Feast of Dedication by his walking in the porch of the temple at that time, John 10 and 22 and 23. And yet that feast was made anniversary by Judas Maccabeus. But it is answered that Christ's walking there was no approbation of the feast. Our Savior might walk in the porch of the temple and yet not approve all that was done there at that time. Nor is there the least evidence of Christ's going up to Jerusalem that so he might keep that feast or that he was present at it as a feast. When Paul hasted to be at Jerusalem before Pentecost, Acts 20.16, it was not to keep the fee that feast but for other reasons. And undoubtedly, if the Feast of Dedication was a tradition of the elders, Christ, who was for divine institutions only in matters of religion, never manifested his approbation of it. When Solomon had built the temple, he made a feast at the dedication of it, but he did not command that it should be stated in 
and anniversary. The like is to be said of the second temple in Ezra 6.16. And therefore, it may be questioned whether Judas Maccabeus did not go beyond his commission when upon repairing and purifying the temple after its defilement by Antiochus, he made it a law that eight days should be observed in a stated anniversary way to commemorate that mercy. Some have observed, truly observed that the Jews in their declining times appointed several fasts and feasts which they had no warrant for out of God's word. It is further alleged that Jews did of themselves state a fast on the fifth month because of the temples being burnt in the month, that month, and another fast in the seventh month on account of Gedaliah's being then murdered. Zechariah 7.5 Answer but these were only temporary and not perpetual fasts, nor did the Lord, when inquired of by them, manifest the least approbation of what they did, but rather the contrary. Sixth, Christmas holidays were at first invented and instituted in compliance with the pagan festivals of old observed at that very time of the year. This Stuchius has fully cleared and Hospinian speaketh judiciously when he saith that he doth not believe that they who first of all observed the feast of Christ's nativity in the latter end of December did it as thinking that Christ was born in that month, but because the heathen Saturnalia was at that time kept in Rome, and they were willing to have those pagan holidays metamorphosed into Christian. Hence December was called Mensis Genialis, the voluptuous months. Whilst the Saturnalian days lasted, the observers of them were wont to send gifts one to another, which therefore Tertullian calls Saturnalitia, and Jerome giveth them the name of Saturnalium Sportulae. The like is done by many in Christmas time. Again, in the Saturnalian days, masters did wait on their servants, as Macrobius and Athenius declare the Gentiles called Saturn's time the Golden Age because in it there, were no, there was no servitude in commemoration whereof of his festival servants must be masters, and that amongst Christmas keepers. In some parts of the world there used to be such masters of misrule is too well known. From these considerations, not only Protestant writers, but some papists acknowledge that Christmas holidays succeed the old Saturnalia of the heathen. Now for Christians thus to practice is against clear scripture, which command the Lord's people not to learn the way of the heathen, nor do after the manner. In, in Jeremiah 10.2, Leviticus 20.23, Ezekiel 11.12, to observe the festivals of the heathen is one way of partaking with them in their superstitions. Tertullian, in his book Against Idolatry, expresses himself after this manner, Shall we Christians who have nothing to do with the festivals of the Jews, which were once of divine institution, embrace the Saturnalia and Januaria of the heathen? How do the Gentiles shame us, who are more true to their religion than we are to ours? None of them will observe the Lord's day for fear that they, lest they should be Christians. And shall not we then, by observing their festivals, fear lest we be made heathens? We might take notice of the heathenism of this festival in another respect. It was the manner of the Gentiles to celebrate the birthdays of their princes and patrons, and in 
imitation of them, degenerating Christians thought good so far to symbolize with the customs of the nations as to keep the birthday of Christ, whom they acknowledged to be their Lord and Sovereign. Seventh, the generality of Christmas keepers observed that festival after such a manner as is highly dishonorable to the name of Christ. How few are there comparatively that spend those holidays, as they are called, after an holy manner, but they are consumed in compotations, in interludes, in playing at cards, in revelings, in excessive wine, in mad mirth. Will Christ the Holy Son of God be pleased with such services? Just after this manner were the Saturnalia of the heathen celebrated, Saturn was the gaming god, and the feast of Christ's nativity is attended with such profaneness as that it deserves the name of Saturn's mass, or of Bacchus his mass, or if you will the devil's mass, rather than to have the holy name of Christ put upon it. Mr. Perkins, in his exposition of the creed, justly explains that the feast of Christ's nativity, commonly so called, is not spent in praising God, but in reveling, dicing, carding, masking, mumming, and in all licentious liberty, for the most part, as though it were some heathen feast of Ceres or Bacchus. And Latimer, in one of his sermons, saith that men dishonor Christ more in the twelve days of Christmas than in all the twelve months besides. Nor is it to be wondered at if that festival be accompanied with much profaneness and vanity when the chief pleaders for them are not ashamed to justify the play, playing at cards as lawful for a divertisement on Christmas holy days. And is that the way to honor Christ? The love feasts, though in themselves lawful, which began in the apostles' times, were wholly laid aside amongst Christians because they had been an occasion of riotous abuses. There is much more reason to omit the observation of Christmas festivities which have brought a deluge of profaneness upon the world. The scandal of them calls for their abolition. The school doctors affirm rightly things of an indifferent nature when they become an occasion of sin should not at all be used. Chapter 4 A testimony against some other superstitions concerning New Year's gifts, Candlemas, Shrove Tuesday, the vanity of making cakes on such a day, the heathenism and barbarity of cockscalers, the superstition of dedicating days to saints, a lamentation that ever things of this nature should be practiced in New England. It is a custom amongst some to send gifts one to another on the 1st of January. These were by the Romans called strenae. Amongst the heathen of old, the 1st of January was a great holiday when they began their new year and worshipped their god Janus, and that in the new year's gifts they intended some honor to the god Strenua is manifested from the name, as also from the practice of Tatius, who first began the custom by gathering some sacred branches out of Strenua, her grove, I find that the ancients have reprehended this custom amongst Christians as a paganish rite, that Boniface, whom some have called the Apostle of Germany, when he reproved the Germans for observing New Year's Day after the manner of the heathen, they objected to him that it was so done in Rome, whereupon he wrote an epistle to Pope Zachary, desiring that no such paganish custom might be used amongst those that called themselves Christians. In the Turinesian Synod, 
Anno 554, it was declared that such as observed the calends of January, in other words, the New Year's Day, should not be accounted Christians. In the Synod at, at Antisiodorum, this custom is severely condemned. Yea, they call New Year's gifts Strenus Diaboli, and so does Alcunius. Our famous Perkins, in an epistle to the President and Fellows of Christ's College in Cambridge, condemns New Year's gifts as impious because they are consecrated with the name of Janus. Concerning Candlemas, besides the name, has superstition written in the forehead of it, I shall only add that the feast of the purification of the Virgin Mary was taken up in imitation of the festival of the goddess Februa, to whom pagans did, in the beginning of February, offer burning tapers, as the papists now offer to the Virgin Mary on this day at evening candles. Let such as retain any of this superstition consider whether it be meet for Protestants thus to imitate papists and pagans. The like is to be affirmed of Shrove Tuesday. It smells both of popish and paganish superstition. Why does it bear the name of Shrove Tuesday, but because on that evening deluded papists go to the priest to be shrieved or to make auricular confession? The Italians call Shrove Tuesday by the name of Bacchanale. The Spaniards, Fiestas de Baco, and the French, Bacchanalerie, which shows that the carnival comes in the room of the old Bacchanalia and Dionysia of the Gentiles, and indeed is kept after the same manner, especially in some places. We see it is celebrated with the observation of sundry heathenish vanities. When persons sing out that day to make pancakes in, it is an heathenish vanity. The prophet Jeremy speaks of some that did knead their dough to make cakes to the Queen of Heaven. Jeremiah 7.18 Shall Christians do anything which shall look like unto a symbolizing with such heathenism? The old pagan Romans made little cakes as a sacrifice to their gods. These they called Liba. And the heathen Greeks made Popana, pancakes, as an offering to their idols. Especially they did practice this at the time when they celebrated the feast of Bacchus, which, as we have proved, was the heathen's shrovetide. Arnobius of old did zealously testify against this heathenism. What's the meaning, saith he, of your poultices, or your pancakes, of your fritters, and so forth? And again, do you think that God is pleased with your superstitious cakes? Another vanity attending Shrovetide is that of cock scaling. It is agreed among ancient historians that cocks were brought out of Persia into Greece, for which cause the Themistocles had obtained a notable victory over the Persians. It was made a law among the Athenians that once in a year there should be a public cock fight in commemoration of that victory. If this were the worst, it were more tolerable, for there is nothing of religious nature in it. But I find that the cock, because of his fighting quality, was by the old Gentiles dedicated to Mars. Hence Aristophanes calls him bur Mars his bird, and Lacedaemonians were wont to sacrifice a cock to their god Mars. Our forefathers, the Saxons, called the third day of the week Tuesday, in devotion to the great father and leader Twisco, 
whom after his death they idolized. The Germans now call it Dingstag, in other words, the fighting day. The old Romans, and from them the Italians, French, Spaniards, and others, have given it the name of Mars's Day. Whether the practice of slaughtering cocks on Tuesday or Mars's Day have not in it some of the old idolatrous heathenism, let every wise and serious Christian judge. Besides all this, to delight in tormenting dumb creatures and to make a sport of their miseries is great inhumanity and a scandalous violation of the sixth commandment. No creature belonging to this world would ever have been miserable had not the sin of man caused it to be so. And the whole creation groans to be delivered from that woeful vanity which man has subjected it unto. Wherefore, for men to make sport with the griefs and dollars of miserable creatures in such barbarism as a truly Christian heart cannot but abhor such cruelty is more suitable to be acted in the bloody theaters of pagans than to be seen in the streets amongst men that call themselves Christians. I remember a serious passage mentioned in the life of that worthy minister, Mr. John Mackin. He, on a time meeting some young men that were going to a cockfighting, said to one of them, Friends, our Lord and Master Jesus Christ never came into the world to set up such sports as these which words struck like an arrow in the heart of that young man. And the issue was that he repented, and there was a blessed change in his whole course of life. If the writing of these things shall have the like effect on any reader, my labor will not be lost. The Lord grant that it may be so. More I need not add on this subject, only that I find in the ecclesiastical discipline of the Reformed churches in France that the keeping of Shrove Tuesday is expressly forbidden. Concerning the dedication of days to the honor of saints departed, suppose Valentine, St. Matthias, or any other, we have not one example in the scripture to warrant such a practice. The Lord's people of old did not so. There was no holiday appointed to the honor of Moses or Joshua or any of the prophets in the Church of Israel. Nor was there a saint's day known amongst Christians until such time as the Christian apostasy and idolatry began. Many learned men have proved by testimonies out of the ancients that the superstition of consecrating days to the martyrs was done in imitation of the Gentiles, who dedicated days in devotion to their heroes after their death, and Christians thought to bring the heathens over to them by appointing festivals to the honor of martyrs and other famous saints. But this looks like worshiping saints. And the truth is that the superstition of praying to saints departed came in with that of instituting days to their honor. And the arguments made use of by Protestants against building altars or temples for the honor of saints are valid in this case. Religious worship is due to God only. Matthew 4.10 now, that a festival or a holiday is a part of religious worship is not only by Protestants asserted, but by some papists acknowledged. How the observers of such days can wholly clear themselves from transgressing the second commandment, I confess myself unable to discern. But my design is not to enlarge on these things. What has been spoken may suffice for a testimony against the impleted growing evils. It is deeply to be lamented 
that there should be any need to preach or to write against any such vanities here in New England. I can remember the time when for many years not so much as one of all these superstitious customs was known to be practiced in this land. They are good nowhere, but in New England they are a thousand times worse than in, any, in another place, upon which account there is sad cause to expect that it will not be long before the Holy God will reveal his displeasure from heaven against them. This has been Emmanuel's land. New England was and over ought to be a land of uprightness. But shall men do such things in a land of uprightness where the word of God and the ministers of God have taught them better? Is it no provocation to defile the Lord's land? To my knowledge, the first generation of Christians came into this wilderness with hopes that their posterity here would never be so corrupted with such vain customs. As such of the old standards as are yet living, if it were not so, and the printed labors of sundry, the most eminent of the fathers in these churches, do in part declare it. But alas, that so many of the present generation have so early corrupted their doings. Methinks I hear the Lord speaking to New England as once to Israel. I planted thee a noble vine, holy a right seed. How then art thou turned? into the degenerate plant of a strange vine unto me. Amen. Stillwater's Revival Books is now located at PuritanDownloads.com. It's your worldwide online Reformation home for the very best in free and discounted classic and contemporary Puritan and Reformed books, MP3s, and videos. For much more information on the Puritans and Reformers, including the best free and discounted classic and contemporary books, MP3s, digital downloads, and videos, please visit Stillwater's Revival Books at PuritanDownloads.com. Stillwater's Revival Books also publishes the Puritan Hard Drive, the most powerful and practical Christian study tool ever produced. All thanks and glory be to the mercy, grace, and love of the Lord Jesus Christ for this remarkable and wonderful new Christian study tool. The Puritan Hard Drive contains over 12,500 of the best Reformation books, MP3s, and videos ever gathered onto one portable Christian study tool. An extraordinary collection of Puritan, Protestant, Calvinistic, Presbyterian, Covenanter, and Reformed Baptist resources. It's fully upgradable and it's small enough to fit in your pocket. The Puritan hard drive combines an embedded database containing many millions of records with the most amazing and extraordinary custom Christian search and research software ever created. The Puritan hard drive has been produced to assist you in the fascinating and exhilarating spiritual, intellectual, familial, ecclesiastical, and societal adventure that is living the Christian life. It has been specifically designed so that you might more faithfully know, serve, and love the Lord Jesus Christ, as well as to help you to do all you can to bring glory to His great name. If you want to love God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind, then the Puritan hard drive is for you. Visit PuritanDownloads.com today for much more information on the Puritan hard drive and to take advantage of all the free and discounted Reformation and Puritan books, MP3s, and videos that we offer at Stillwater's Revival Books.